And it's the last book of the Bible. Um, God saves the best for last. You know, so it's, it's, it's the last book of the Bible. And, and uh, with that, I want to just give a, a, a brief introduction to the book of Revelation. So the, the book of Revelation, you know, it's called, and most of you guys have, have a, a title there, there in, your, in your Bibles as you go to it. And it says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we get this title from the first verse of the, of the book, where it says, Revelation 1, when it says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we get the title for the book from the very first verse. But interesting that, that, the, that the word revelation, if you look at it in the Spanish Bible, it'll say uh, apocalypsis, you know, which comes from the word apocalypse that we all hear, uh, have heard of. And t- typically when we hear of apocalypse, you think of like, you know, zombie apocalypse, you know, uh, kinds of crazy mayhem, destruction uh, going on in the world. But this word, this word apocalypse, so the, the word revelation comes from the Greek word uh, apocalypsis. Which is to to reveal, to uncover, um, and unveiling. You know, so if we were to have an art show here, you know, and we'd have everything covered. We had like the best painting or the best artwork covered. You know, we, we'd have it uh, covered until like the, the end of the night, and then all of a sudden we would ah, apocalypse. You know, we would reveal it. And so the Book of Revelation is is, is a revealing. It's an uncovering. It's an it's an un- unveiling. And so you may, you may ask, why? Well, what is it an unveiling of, or who? Rather, of who? And it's of Jesus Christ, this unveiling of Jesus Christ, this uncovering of Jesus Christ. Now, we see that, that the author of this book is, is, a, is a guy named John. You know, he's John, the disciple of Jesus, one of the 12, one of the original 12 disciples that, that, that walked with Jesus, you know, lived with Jesus for three and a half years uh, that Jesus ministered to. And we see that John identifies himself as the author various times throughout the book, as we're going to read. We see that the book of Revelation was written... In the last decade of the first century, so somewhere around 94 through 96 uh, uh, AD, we see that John received his letter while he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And this guy was uh, the last of the living, uh, the living apostles, the last of the living disciples, uh, John the Beloved, you know, the Apostle John. He wrote this while he was exiled in the island of Patmos. They had already attempted to kill him once. The rest of the guys have already died. They've been killed. They've been martyred for their faith. Uh, John was the last living one. They had already tried to kill him once by, by throwing him in a... In a, in a in a, in a boiling cauldron of hot oil He survived that miraculously And so they, they exiled him to the, into the island of Patmos Where he spent the rest of his, day, his days And where he got this vision from the Lord And, and pinned down the book of Revelation And so we see that the island of Patmos is, Was located in the Aegean Sea It was southwest of the city of Ephesus And we see that the Roman authorities Had banished him there because of his faithful preaching Of the gospel as he's going to mention there in verse 9 and so while on Patmos, John received a series of visions that laid out the future history of the world. Something that we would you know, define as prophecy. Right? And so the book of Revelation is primarily prophetic. You know, most of it is, is, is prophetic in nature. It's, it's primarily prophetic. But it, and we see that it gives us detailed insights into events that will transpire in the future. This unveiling of things of, the, of Jesus and this unveiling of things that are going to transpire in the future. That are going to take place in the future, in the near future, I should say. But throughout those prophecies, the main central focus of the writings is Jesus Christ, right? The revealing of the person of Jesus Christ, right? The whole book is called the revelation of, of Jesus Christ, you know, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Not so much, you know, but sometimes we, t- we tend to focus a lot on, on, on the beast and on the mark of the beast, the 666, you know, who's the Antichrist, who's, you know, what's all these, and, and we, as we go through the book of Revelation, we could follow different little rabbit trails and we could lose the central focus of, 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 the, of the book, which is, Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so, we see that the book of Revelation is divided into three sections. 
you know, and, and, and it's an outline that, that the Lord gives, you know, gives for, for, for himself. Interesting because the book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible in which God himself gives an outline for. You know, typically for, for someone who's going to teach a Bible study or go through a book or, or, or whatever, you know, I mean, me, for example, if I was going to teach a book, um, I would read it. I would, you know, divide, divide the chapters into sections and however I, I read it and I see fit and I decide, and I design, I, I decide to, to, to organize or replace it. But the book of Revelation is the only book in which God himself does the work for us. You know, he says, all right, this is the three divided sections of it. This is how you're going to teach it. You know, here's the whole outline for it. And so we see that the book of Revelation is divided into three sections. Number one, the Lord uh, speaks to, to John. And he says, all right, write the things which are. And we see that, I mean, write the, the things which you have seen. And that's in chapter one. And then he says, write the things, the things which are. And that's chapters two to three. And then he says, write the things which will be, which is chapters four through 22. And so the book of Revelation is divided into th those three sections. The things which you've seen, which are, and which will be. And we see that when studying the book of Revelation, uh, there are four main approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. So most Bible teachers, most churches, you know, most uh, 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 Christians, uh, um, they, they take usually one of these four approaches, main approaches, to interpreting the book of Revelation. Because it's prophetic in nature, because there's a lot of symbolism, because there's a lot of, you know, kind of uh, weird stuff in it, you know, people take, tend to take diff different roads when interpreting, you know, what these things mean. And, and so there's four main approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. The first one is what's known as the, the, the preterist approach. Preterism, the preterist approach. And, and the, the person who takes this preterist approach typically looks at the things that written in the book of Revelation as things which are past. Right? They interpret the book of Revelation as a description of first century events in the Roman Empire, like the destruction of the temple in, in AD 70, for example. And so they, they, they would read the prophecies in the book of Revelation. They say, oh yeah, this was talking about what happened you know, uh, in the first century with the first century church. So they, these are things that, are, that already happened. Right? A second one of those, those uh, views of, of interpretation when it comes to the book of Revelation is the historicist approach. Which looks at the book of Revelation and the things contained in it as, as things which are present. You know, and they would view the book of Revelation as a kind of a, a panoramic view you know, of church history from the time of the apostles until now. Meaning, alright, you know, we're going through one of the churches, we're going through one of the, 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 the bold judgments, one of the, you know, the, 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 drink, the judgment, these judgments. And they, they describe that as one, as a church age. You know, and each one of these, each one of these judgments or each one of these these things describes a specific church age, right? That's the historicist approach. And the third one is the idealist approach. You know, and the person who, who who looks at the book of Revelation with that idealist approach would interpret it as you know a timeless book. You know, and they would they would take the book of Revelation. You know, and they would interpret it again as this just timeless depiction of of the struggle between forces of good and evil. Um, they would view the book of Revelation as more of a, a, an allegorical book, you know, and, and, and just kind of stories that, that have a meaning and application for our lives, but, never, but not really anything uh, specific or anything, you know, true or anything uh, um, uh, that's going to happen. I mean, uh, so that would kind of just take away the whole prophetic element of it. And the fourth approach to interpreting the book of Revelation is the futurist approach. You know, the person who, who takes this futurist approach on the book of Revelation would read the things contained here in this book. You know, and, and, and they would, they would, they would uh, uh, say that a lot of these things are yet to happen. They're for the future, right? And so this is the view that, that, that we hold as Calvary Chapel. This is the, 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 the hold that we take. With, this is the, 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 
the view that we believe is a correct way to approach the book of Revelation. Why? Because God himself gives us the outline. He says, hey, write the things which you've seen, write the things which are, and write the things which are going to happen. And we see a lot of these things that we, that we read through. I mean, as we, as we go through the whole book, we're going to see that a lot of this stuff has not happened. I mean, worldwide famines, you know, worldwide floods, worldwide destruction, earthquakes, all kinds of crazy stuff happening. I mean, yeah, we see stuff, you know, every once in a while you hear a tornado. We have forest fires every year. You know, a, a volcano erupted a few months ago. But never to, to the scale, to the degree which we read about in the book of Revelation. And so we take this approach, the, the, the futurist approach, and we see that, that, uh, that the events specifically contained from chapter 6, to the end of the book, chapter 22, are yet future. And those chapters literally and symbolically depict actual people and events yet to appear on the world scene. And so it describes the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so that's the, the approach that we're going to take as we go through the book of Revelation. I had to give you that because, you know, every once in a while you hear a different teacher. And, 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 and without them explaining this to you, you know, without explaining their own view of the book of Revelation, they'll begin teaching it. You know, they can, you could get a lot, of, you know, very confused because they're teaching it from their own perspective. You know, and without knowing this, you know, you might get you might get thrown off by something that they say. You know, but but knowing these these four main approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation, you'll know where they stand. You'll know where you stand. You know, and you'll be able to kind of kind of detect you know where someone else stands as you hear them go through the book of Revelation, teach from it, or even share with you about it. And so, uh, as far as application, you know, our own personal application for the book of Revelation, you know, the question comes up: All right, man, well, if all this is futurist, all this is prophetic, God bless you. If all this is, uh, <laughs> if all this is something that that we could apply to our own lives, how do we apply it to our own lives? Right? The book, the question is: How can I apply the reading of Revelation to my personal life? We read some of these weird things that are in there, you know, weird beasts described, weird, weird uh, angel described, just world, world, world events described. You think, man, how could I apply that to my life, right? Well, sometimes we think that the book is all about judgment and destruction, and, and, and though we see a lot of judgment and destruction taking place, you know, it's not just about judgment and destruction. You know, we should take comfort in the fact that, that at the end of the book, the judgment of sin and death is complete. That's what we should take comfort in, right? Interesting that... That the Bible in the book of Genesis begins with, 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 the, with paradise, right? God, you know, dwelling with man, you know, no sin, there's no separation. It begins in paradise, Genesis chapter 1. And it ends, Revelation 22, in paradise. And that's the whole story of the Bible, you know, God's redemption of sin, God's redemption of mankind from the very first page to the last page of the book, right? And we take comfort in that. But before we get to the paradise, we have to read about what's going to happen, you know, leading to that. And so... Probably one of the most comforting verses in the book of Revelation, my opinion and probably your opinion once you read it too, is Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5, which says, Now I, start, now I saw a new heaven. John speaking says, Now I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had, had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, adorned, uh, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and, their, and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Probably some of the most comforting words in the whole Bible. But specifically in the book of Revelation. Right? And so as we read through the book of Revelation, you know, we could look forward to these things. Knowing that, right, you know, we have suffering. We're in these bodies. We go through pain. Right? We went on a hike yesterday. I haven't hiked in a long time. And I came home and I was dead. 
Like, man, my knees hurt. Oh, man, my back hurts. Oh, man, why did I go? <laughs> right? But then we have this, this hope, you know, we have this comfort in knowing, all right, one day God's going to redeem, you know, all humanity, redeem the earth, make all things new again. And so many things that, that we see around us are the direct effect of sin, the, uh, are from the are a direct consequence of sin. If you study through the book of Genesis, we have some of the recordings, but um, even... Uh, when, when, sin, when sin came into the world and when Adam and Eve sinned, we see that, that, that God cursed the, the earth because of, on their behalf because they had sinned against God. And we see that, that as a result of, of, of man uh, sinning against God, thorns sprouted out of, out of the flowers, out, out, of, out of the roses. And so interesting thing that even the thorns on a rose are a direct result of sin. That's heavy. Because I start thinking, man, all these things that we see around us in the world you know, that, are, that are directly attributed to sin. Right, and we we live in a society where society tries to they make laws. So hey, man, uh, you can't say this because it's racist. You can't say that because it goes against you know it, it's it's politically incorrect. And they, and and we see that, that that man tries to govern society in a way you know to, to create this earthly utopia, right? And, and, and it's like man is trying to create this this heaven on earth, and it's never going to happen. Why? Because a lot of these things that we see around us are a direct result of sin. And man can make as many laws as they want. They can make as many uh, 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 laws, judgments, whatever, ordinances, you know, against, against sinful things. But they're never going to be able to get rid of the sinful humanity of the heart. All right? And that's why we see all these things happening, because of the sin in, in our hearts. And so we take comfort in the fact that God one day is going to make all things new. Right? He's going to do away with, with, with all these things. And so with that, I want to jump into the book. Uh, starting in verse 1, I will read probably three verses. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. And he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Awesome. We'll start right there. And so, we see the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, the book contains a lot of strange symbolic uh, language. You'll see as we go through it, you know, a lot of strange symbolic language. But, but it's not meant to be some, some hidden message. Right? The, the, the aim of the Lord in giving this book to John, the, the aim of the Lord in giving us this book is not so that we could try to, you know, play like one of those games, Clue. Oh, this is what it means. Is that it? Is this that? Is that right? Or charades? Or is it this? Or is that? Or no. His aim isn't for us to try to kind of figure, try to figure out and try to guess, you know, some, try, some hidden meaning. But it's meant to reveal truth. It's meant to unveil truth. Right? The truth of Jesus Christ. And so... The revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we go through the book, the focus is Jesus. Apart from Jesus, there is no fulfillment of prophecy. So the book is about Jesus. Now, sometimes, again, we approach the book of Revelation to getting some kind of special understanding or, or, or we try to, 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 to find out who the Antichrist is or, or who the beast is that the, that the book refers to or, or that, that Babylon, who, who, that, who that's referring to. Right? And we get sidetracked by all these little things and we, we focus on these things. Right? I mean, I don't know how many, I don't want to see arguments, but discussions I've had with people concerning the book of Revelation. And, you know, there's a portion of it where it talks about two witnesses. And one says, ah, it has to be Moses and Elijah, or it has to be this guy and this guy. And people get so tripped up over little things and little minute things. And they miss out on the whole fact that, hey, man, it's not about that. It's not about who the, what the identity of the two witnesses are. It's about Jesus. You know, and that's besides the fact. Right? But we get so tripped up on, on, on little things as we're, as we're journeying through the book of Revelation and, and lose 
back to the focus that's Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ. And so we must not lose focus of what the book is intended to, to do, and that is reveal more of Jesus to us. For example, we see in chapters 1 through 3 uh, that, that Jesus is described as the priest king. We see in chapters 4 through 5 that Jesus is described as the Lamb of God. And then we see in chapters 6 through 18 that Jesus is described as the judge of all the earth. And then we see in chapters 19 through 22 that he's described as the king of kings. That's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Every chapter. And so revelation, we see the revelation which God gave to show his servants. I like that. I like that because John chose a specific word for, for that word servant that we have translated in English. There's a few Greek words that he could have chose to, to, to use, uh, to, to put in right there for the word servant. But he chose one specifically, which is the Greek word doulos. You know, so when we read servant there in our English, the Greek, the Greek translation of that is doulos, you know, which means a bond servant. It's a specific type of servant. You know, now this bond servant, this doulos, is a slave who willingly served his master, not out of obligation, but out of love. You might think, oh, there was slavery in the Bible. Yeah, there was slavery in the Bible. We read it all over. It doesn't mean that it condoned slavery. Right, but, but slavery back then was different. It wasn't based on someone's skin color. It wasn't based on someone's uh, racial ethnicity. But a lot of times, you know, due to the culture, people would become enslaved because they owed a debt. You know, because uh, maybe they, yeah, it was mainly because of debt. You know, sometimes it was because of poverty. And so they would, so slavery in the Bible was different. It's more like an employment, right? Or it's like a, all right, like a, like a payment, like a payment plan. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the, the, the Lord gave specific laws and instructions to the nation of Israel concerning the servants, concerning the, the slaves. For one, he said, all right, you're not, you're not to be make slaves out of one of your own brethren. He says, and two, if, if, someone, if someone owes you money, you know, and, and they become enslaved to you, you know, to pay off that debt, after seven years, you got to let them go no matter how much money he owes you, right? If he's indebted 100000 and after seven years, he's only paid off like uh, fifty, you got to let him go no matter what, right? It was a year, the year of Jubilee. He would say, all right, you have to, you have to treat your, 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 your slaves, you know, accordingly. You have to treat them good. Make sure you provide for them. Make sure you take care of them because if you don't, then that's your own neck right there. And then there was another law, a law for the for the for the bond servant, law, uh, 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 for the bond slave, for, for the willing slave. And that is, God gave him a law. He said, "Look, if you have someone in your household who's paying off a debt, they're enslaved to you for whatever amount of years. And at the end of that, they decide, you know what, man, I've been working for this guy, paying off my debt, and he's been really good to me. He's provided for me. He's treated me well. He's gave me a good room, a roof over my head. He's never left me hungry. I, I got married while I was working for him. And now I have kids. He's taking care of my family. I want to work for you for the rest of my life. And you just, you just keep on providing for me for my family. It's a good deal. And then that person will become a bond servant. You know, and we're told in the Old Testament that, that, the, that the master, he would, he would pierce the ear of the, of the bond servant to, to the door. You know, he would, he would pierce his ear. And, and that was a symbol to everybody, you know, that, that this guy, you know, he, he's a bond servant. You know, he's a willing a willing uh, a slave, a willing, a willing servant out of love, right? And then so it wouldn't be like a master-slave relationship. But it would just be like, hey amen, this brotherly, a loving relationship. And so John uses this specific word, this doulos, which is in the Greek now, you know, this bondservant. And he says, the revelation which God gave to show his bondservants, his servants, his douloses, right? And so who are his servants? Well, that's us. That's us. If you've surrendered your life to the Lord and devoted your life to him, and that's you. He's talking about you. You're that doulos. You're that bond servant. You're that, 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 that willing, you know, that, 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 that willing servant out of love. And so the idea is that we as servants of God have this special revelation that God is, that, that, that Jesus gives of himself to us. You know, it's something 
that no regular person or just a regular church scorer can have. You say, hey, man, this is specific to the servants, the bond servants, right? And so we have this, this specific revelation to us, to, to the bond servants. So if you've surrendered your life, you've given, you know, if you ask the Lord Jesus to be the Lord of your life, then re- this revelation is for you specifically. And I like that because that means that, that we get to read it and we get the special insight that no one else can get because we're those bond servants. I think that's pretty cool. All right, so... He says, to show them these things which must shortly take place. Now, keep in mind that, that this vision was given to John about 2,000 years ago now. You know, and he says, hey, man, I'm going to show you some things which must shortly take place. And you may think, man, well, it's been 2,000 years. Nothing's happened by now. You know, he said shortly. I mean, if it hasn't happened by now, it's probably never going to happen. Right? If it hasn't happened by now, then maybe he was wrong about it or maybe we missed it or whatever. It's easy, it's easy to, to, to think that way. But... More than that, you know, what this, what this tells us is that as soon as these things begin to happen, it's like nothing will stop that, that event. So he's not saying, all right, they're going to happen soon. They're gonna, he's saying once they, once they happen, eh, nothing's going to stop that. It's going to be like a, like, a, like, a tumbling, like a tumbling stone from a big hill. Just, you can't get in the way of that. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Right? I like, like what Peter tells us there in 2 Peter 3. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. And so when we read this and we, and we see, all right, the things which must surely take place, we're looking at this in our human, limited human understanding. We live in moments of time. We live, you know, in flashes of time, second, millisecond, you know, boom, 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 right? And so we live in flashes of time. God exists outside of time. So you can see the beginning, the middle, and the end as it was one. And so he, when he says, all right, this thing must surely take place, keep in mind, for God, a thousand years is like one day. One day is like a thousand years for him. You know, so time doesn't exist to God. We may think, man, it's taking forever. But in God's eyes, I'm only like point of a millisecond old, years old. You know, I'm not even 29 years old. I'm point something of a second years old. If we, if we use that timetable, right? And we think, oh man, it's been so much, it's been so long since, since this prophecy was, since this revelation was given. And really it hasn't even been a second for God since this prophecy was given. Right? And so we think that, that, that because it hasn't happened, it won't happen. But that's not true, you know. So because it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. It just means that, hey, we're, we're on a different timetable than God. And so it goes on to say, you know, again, the blessing, uh, 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 show you these things that which must surely take place. And we, so we see the blessing of going through this book. Now, verse 3 says, blessed is he who reads, who hears, and who keeps the words of his prophecy and the things written in it. I like that because though we're blessed by reading any book of the Bible, right? I mean, you all have a... Uh, Personal devotion time, you take a book of the Bible, you're reading, you're like, man, this is awesome, right? And you're blessed by it. And, and, and though we're blessed by reading any book of the Bible, the book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible which specifically promises a, a, a blessing for the person who reads it, who hears it, you know, and who, and who understands it, and, and who keeps it, I should say. Right? It's the only book of the Bible that specifically promises this blessing. I love that. I love that. Now, Interesting that this is the main book, you know, this is the book that promises a blessing to the reader, to the hearer, to the keeper. But interesting that this is the main book that people usually try to avoid reading, hearing, or keeping. That's heavy. And I believe that's a a direct attack from the enemy. I believe that's satanic in nature. Because Satan wants to keep you from being blessed by reading this book, by keeping this book, by hearing this book, by understanding this book, by reading this book. By hearing it taught and by teaching it yourself. I believe that that's a direct attack from the enemy. Now, it was Martin Luther, you know, a lot of you guys know the great reformer, uh, Martin Luther. You know, he, he wrote a commentary on just about every single book of the Bible. 
just about every single book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. And this is something that, that he said about, about the book of Revelation. He said, it is just the same as if we didn't have it. So he said, nah, we could have it, we could not have it. It means really nothing to me. Is it is just the same as if we did not have it. And there are many far better books for us to keep. Finally, let everyone think of it, you know, the book of Revelation. Let everyone think of it as his own spirit gives to him. My spirit cannot fit itself into this book. There is no sufficient reason for me not to think highly of it. Christ is not taught or known in it. He says, there is, no, he says, there is one sufficient reason for me not, not to think highly of it. Christ is not taught or known in it. That's what Martin Luther said. I'm not saying I'm better than Martin Luther. I'm not saying I have a better understanding than Martin Luther. I'm just reading what the Bible says and taking it for face value. Right? Jesus promises a blessing. We read it. This guy said, you know, hey, he sees no significance in it. I would, you know, compared to what God says about his own word, I, I you know, beg to differ. But again, just to, just to, to, to give it an insight into, into the attack of the enemy, you know, when it comes to reading the book of Revelation. Right, so there's something demonic about 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 you know you being kept from reading, understanding, hearing, teaching you know the book of Revelation. That makes me want to read it and hear it and keep it understanding even more and teach it even more, right? Because like we're all right taking the banner and charging against you know this attack from Satan himself. All right, let's go. We're gonna read this. We're gonna keep it. We're gonna understand it, right? And so it goes on to say then verse four. It says. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We'll stop right there. I mean, we could just close the book right there and that would be sufficient. Man, praise God. Right? But he continues on by saying, you know, he says, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so John originally addressed his book to seven specific churches in Asia. Now, this Asia that, that he's referring to is in, you know, the Asia that we would know today. You know, as we look at our map and look at Asia, all the Asian countries, Asia, you know, but it, he's, he's referring to Asia Minor. And so... Uh, what we would consider today as, as, as modern day, uh, I believe it's like Western Turkey. It's Turkey, but I think it's specifically Western Turkey. Now, that doesn't mean that, that there were only seven churches in all of Asia Minor. I mean, by, by this point in time, 90-something uh, AD, there would have been hundreds of, 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 of house churches. I mean, we, we just finished uh, going through the book of Acts, and we see how many uh, house churches uh, uh, Paul established, Paul planted, and Paul visited. And so by, by John's time, by the time he's, he's, he's writing this book, there would have been hundreds of house churches. So it's not that there was just seven churches in Asia Minor, but he chose to write to these specific seven churches in Asia Minor. Right? Now, keep in mind that the number seven in the Bible is symbolic of perfection, of a completion, you know, of a finished work. And so keeping that in mind, you know, we could take this, 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 this approach you know, and, and, and interpret what this means. So the number seven in the Bible is symbolic of perfection, completion, of finished work. You know, it often, it often speaks of, you know, the, the people will call, hey, that's the number of God, seven, right? Or, I don't know if you've seen the seven, 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 or, you know, you think, oh, that's God's number. That's God's perfect number, right? But it's symbolic. It has a lot of symbolism to it. And now, the idea is, you know, he's addressing these seven specific churches, but the message can be applied to the church as a whole, right? The perfection of the message to these churches. Interesting, I don't know if you guys ever noticed, but, but, but Paul also wrote to seven churches, right? Romans. To the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Galatia, uh, to the church at, 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 uh, at Ephesus, to the church at Colossae, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Thessalonica. 
Seven churches. So we have seven letters from Paul. Well, Thessalonians is one and two. Corinthians is one, is one and two. But, but it's addressed to seven churches. Now, I know that Paul ministered to more than seven churches, especially going through the book of Acts. We see that he ministered to a, a bunch of them. But he wrote, he, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write to seven specific churches. Right? And so we see that again, that the number seven is symbolic of completion, fulfillment. And, and, and we take these letters that he wrote to these seven churches because they're inspired by the word of God. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God may be complete, you know, fully equipped, lacking nothing. And so we take these, these, these writings from Paul to these seven churches and we apply it to our own lives, you know, uh, and, and as individuals personally. And so again, that's the whole idea of it behind this is, is you know, the perfection, you know, the completion, this finished work. <laughs> Of, of, of God's word, right? And so, John starts off with a typical greeting. You know, he says, hey, peace from God. He says, peace from God, you know, and the Holy Spirit, right? That's how I imagine John. So he starts off with just a typical, you know, greeting. Hey, peace from God. But there's something interesting here that, 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 that we don't want to miss. I mean, we could easily just read through it like we just did and miss out on something that is just oceans, oceans deep. He says, he says something very interesting, all right? Peace from God. You know, now keep in mind who it is that, that, that this revelation was given to. You know, John the Apostle. He's one of the 12 that walked with Jesus. You know, he knew Jesus. He spent a lot of time with him for three years. I mean, he, he, in his own writings, he would even call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, he had this very intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He spent, again, three and a half years with them. Right? They went through hunger together. They went through persecution together. You know, he, he, he saw him transfigured, you know, in the mountain. He was very close to Jesus. And it's this, and it's this same John that, that, that this revelation was given to. Right? And so he opens up by saying, peace from God the Father. Right? And when he says, I know it's God the Father because it's, he says, from he who is and was and is to come. So he says, peace from God the Father. Peace from the Holy Spirit. When he says the seven spirits, and we'll get into that later down, down the line, but it's referring to the Holy Spirit. He says, and from Jesus Christ. So he says, peace from God the Father, peace from uh, uh, Jesus Christ, and peace from the Holy Spirit. He mentions three. Now, interesting that in verse four, John describes God the Father as being he who is, who, who was, and who is to come. Later on in verse eight, we read, that Jesus, we read Jesus describing himself as the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is, who was, who is to come. Now, how do, how do we know that that's Jesus speaking there? Because later on in verse 18, if you want to look there, he says, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. Now, the question comes up, when did God the Father ever, ever die? He never died, right? God the Father never died, but God the Son died as Jesus Christ, Right? And so I say this to say that I say that to say this that within uh, you know Christian circles within you know the, the, the church as a whole I would I would say um, there's this false teaching known as Arianism it's a heresy this false teaching known as as Arianism which denies the deity of Christ that is you know they deny that Jesus is God Arianism that's what it's called right from this heresy known as Arianism came many uh, cults. And many false religions. One of the most known is the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, um, Charles Taze Russell, 
who was the founder of the, of the Jehovah's Witnesses, he was in, 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 in Arius. He didn't believe that, that Jesus was God. He didn't believe that the Holy Spirit was God. He denied the, the, the scriptures that, that attributed deity to Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so he didn't believe in the Holy Trinity. And so he couldn't reconcile you know, his own beliefs with what the Bible taught. And so he started his own, his own church. He began teaching his own things. And he started teaching you know, that God the Father is, 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 is the one true God. You know, and, and Jesus is he was called a lesser God. You know, the Holy Spirit, he's not even God at all. He's just an active force, you know, of God, an energy. That's, that's, what, that's what they teach. Those guys that come on Saturday mornings, you got to ask them about that. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you themselves, right? And so this, his, his philosophy, his, his theology came from, this, from, from, from this, uh, this false teaching called known as Arianism, which denies the deity of Christ. Now, they claim, again, that, that, that the teaching of the Trinity, that's what they claim. Arius claimed that the teaching of the Trinity... You know, it wasn't accepted until 325 A.D. at the, at the, at the Council of, of Nicaea. Now, we see that, that yet here's John in the first century, 90-something A.D., the first century, you know, living apostle, walk with Jesus, live with Jesus, you know, ate with Jesus, was close to Jesus. And yet, yet here's John in the first century writing this and attributing equal deity to God the, God the Father and God the Son, right? To both God the Father and God the Son. In the very first century, right? Contrary to what Arianism teaches, that it didn't come onto the scene until the third century. You know, it didn't come onto the scene until the Council of Nicaea while they were deciding what's, what's, what's true and what's not. I find that amazing. You know, amazing that how many of these false teachings, how many of these false doctrines, how many of just these, these doubts get settled as we simply just read through God's word. All they did was just read these verses. And we say, oh, well, that's not true. Look, here he is. He wrote this in this time. And they're claiming that that belief didn't come until the third century. But yeah, this was written in the first century. Here's, you know, one of the living apostles who walked with Jesus, knew him personally. You know, yeah, he's attributing this deity. He's saying, hey, Jesus is God. Right? I find that amazing. And now, this, these verses, a few years ago, you would be able to, to take your Bible, even take one of the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses' Bible. Because if you didn't know, the, whole, the, the Watchtower and Tract Society, which is you know, who the Jehovah's Witnesses are, they print their own Bibles, they print their own literature. Um, they don't, they, they want to, you just go down to like a, a Bible store and buy a Bible. They won't, they won't accept it as like inspired literature. They say it's been tainted. And so they print their own Bibles. But every, every time they, they print their own Bibles and they revise it, they change something out of the Bible or they, they omit something, they change something, you know, they take something out. And so a few years ago, you would be able to take this Bible or even take one of their own Bibles and say, oh, look, well, and just do exactly what I just did right now. Go through this verse, go through this verse, and go through this verse and say, oh, well, it's saying that Jesus is God. Right? There can't be two beginnings and ends. There can't be two alphas and omegas. There can't be, you know, two the first and the last. If all of us right here race and say, all right, I'll race you down to Amigos Market. Let's see who gets there first. Let's see who gets there last. There's only one person who's going to be there first. There's only one person who's going to be there last. Right? There can't be two first. There can't be two last. There can't be two alphas, two omegas. Now, when he says, I'm the alpha, I'm the omega, he's referring to the Greek uh, alphabet. You know, uh, the alpha being the, the, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the omega being the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So he's saying, look, I'm the beginning, I'm the last, I'm above time, I'm, the, I'm all this. There can't be two of those. And so here's John attributing these same, these same attributes to both Jesus, the Son, and, and, to, and to God the Father. You know, and teaching the, the Holy Trinity. That's what we believe in, the Holy Trinity. That's what the Bible teaches, that there is one God, you know, and within that one God exists three persons, different, distinct from each other, but yet equal deity, equal power, you know, and, and equal attributes. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the, it's, I'll be honest, if you ask me to explain it to you perfectly, I won't be able to. No one will be able to. I mean, that's, I'm, 
I'm here a finite, limited mind trying to understand an infinite God. You know, but one of the best ways I could describe it to you is the sun, right? We have the sun, we have its heat, and we have its rays. One sun, you know, three distinct uh, aspects to it, but yet one sun. Ah, right, I'm, I'm going to move forward. I don't want to spend too much time on that. We'll talk about it after. I'll go maybe for another 30 minutes on that. And so he goes on to say, Peace from God the Father, Jesus Christ, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now again, keeping in mind what we just read about the seven churches, you know, this, this, again, the this, this seven number, the, the number seven is, is representative of completion, of perfection. And so he's speaking of the perfection and completion of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, right? He's not saying that God has seven mysterious spirits flowing around his throne and that, you know, I've heard that. I've heard someone say that. Oh, hey, God has seven spirits and, you know, you have the spirit of this and you have the spirit of that. There's one Holy Spirit, you know, there's, there's one spirit of God. And, and when it says right there, you know, hey, and peace from the seven spirits were tried at the throne of God. It's talking about the, fulfi- the fulfillment, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He says, well, peace from the fulfill, the fulfillment, the perfection, the completion of the Holy Spirit. Right? Not that God has seven mysterious spirits. And then he says something that's just absolutely beautiful. He says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We could just... We could do a whole hour just on that. We could do a whole series just on that phrase. It says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. If you read that, it makes no sense, right? Typically, if you want to wash something, you could wash it in soap or in bleach or in whatever, not in blood, right? Blood's only going to taint it more. But we see that John uses the word love in a past tense. He says, to him who loved us. Interesting. Right? Not that he's teaching that God doesn't love us. You know, he's not saying that God stopped loving us. But what John is doing is that he's pointing back to a specific moment in time when Jesus loved us so much that he did something. He washes in his own blood, talking about the cross, looking back to the cross, uh, pointing back to a specific moment in time. He says to him who loved us and washed us in his own blood. Right? He washes his own blood at the cross. Now, if you hear this morning and if you ever needed a reminder of how much God loves you, it's this. The cross of Jesus Christ. You know, that God will love you so much that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die a painful death, shed his own blood, and wash you from your sins in his own blood. Right? We get so deep into this, the whole book of, of Hebrews. You know, if you ever get into a study of the book of Hebrews, the book, the book of Hebrews is written to, to Hebrew Christians, you know, Jewish Christians. And, and, and it's, it's written to them to, to, because there was this whole group of, of Jewish Christians who were still holding on to the law, still holding on to the, to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And adding that, you know, to their salvation in Christ. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews writes to them. He tells them, look, all these things that were practiced in the Old, te- in the Old Testament, in the temple, in the worship in the Old temp- in the, in the Temple, the, 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 the sacrifices of bulls and goats and all these things, it was all pointing towards Christ, to the ultimate sacrifice, that, the sacrifice of Christ. And one thing that the writer of Hebrews says, he says, look, he, he points this out. He says, we had to go to the temple every single year, every single month, every single whatever, whenever we can to go and, and, and offer these animals as sacrifices for our sins because the blood of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient enough to forgive us, to cleanse us from our sin. It was only meant to cover us for a moment of our sins. And then the, book, then the writer of the book of Hebrews says, but Jesus Christ, when he offered a sacrifice, he, when he offered his, his blood, he offered it once and for all. And so he's, he's, he's making this comparison between you know, the Old Testament sacrifice to the finished sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's saying, when Jesus offered his blood, when his blood was shed, you know, it was symbolic of, of, of us being washed once and for all. And not just covering of our sin, but just this removing of our sin once and for all. Right? And so he says, and to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own 
blood. Man, the greatest display of love right there, of God's love for you and me. The cross. But notice that, that, that the word washed is also in the past tense. He loved us and he washed us. Past tense. Right? Why? So the Bible teaches that at the moment, at the very moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, not the moment you come to church, not the moment you start serving ministry, not the moment that you go do your first outreach or teach your first Bible study. No, the very moment where, where you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that, that, that very moment, you know, we are washed from our sins and clothed now in the righteousness of Christ. That very moment, right? You could be driving, you could be hearing someone on the radio, you could be watching, you know, someone a study on TV or whatever. And, and at that very moment that you decide in your heart, you know what? I believe this. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe that because he died on the cross for me, I'm saved. And, and you know, he's, he washed me from my sins. The very moment you, 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 you decide that in your heart, the Bible tells us it's at that very moment that he, that now... Uh, we are clothed, the Bible says, with the, Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Meaning that it's not God that, that it's not that God is adding to our righteousness in Him as we continue to walk with them, as we continue to, to serve in church, or you know, it's not that as we, as we continue doing stuff for God that God's going to add more righteousness to us. No, no way. You know, the, the the finished work of righteousness, you know, on on Christ's behalf imparted to us, was done at the very moment you you believed in Him. Right? There's nothing that you can add to add, there's nothing that you can do, I should say, to add to God's righteousness. You think if you come to church seven days a week, you know, and, and you spend all your time giving it, all your money giving to the church, all your time, you know, messing the church, do you think God's gonna impute more righteousness to you? He's not. Right? You think he's gonna love you more if you do more things for all well, I'm doing this for him, I'm serving here at the church, I'm teaching a Bible study, and I'm gonna do one in Spanish, and I'm gonna you think God's gonna love me more because I'm doing that? No. Here he loves me as much as he's gonna love me. Ever. He's already going to love you as much as he's ever going to love you. You're, he's, he's already made you righteous as much as he's ever going to make you righteous. I'm going to say something that... I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm going to regret it, but... It's funny that a lot of people won't say it from the pulpit. You know, because they're scared um, of what's going to happen. But did you know that if you never showed up to church, God's still going to love you? Did you know that if you never served in ministry, if you never did anything for God, but you simply just believe in him... He's still going to love you. And he's not, he's not going to love you any less. Than if, if he loves me as much, me doing all this stuff, he's gonna, he loves me as much as a guy who's just saying, man, uh, loving God, saved, and just watching, watching the service from his couch, not wanting to do anything for God. I, I, it's true, right? A lot of people are not going to stand from the pulpit because they're scared that everyone's going to leave the church. And, but I can't lie to you. That's the truth. That's the truth, right? There's nothing that I can do to add to my salvation. There's nothing that I can do to add to my righteousness. Or God's righteousness appeared on me. There's nothing I could do to add to my to, to, to God's love for me. I can't butter God up. I can't, you know, uh, brown nose him and all right, Lord, look, look what I'm doing now, God. Oh look, now I'm now I'm washing the dishes. Oh look, now I'm teaching a Spanish Bible study. Love me, love me, love me more. No. He loves you as much as he loves me. He loves me as much as he loves her. He loves her as much as he's gonna love any one of us. And that's to the fullest. I love that. I love that. Because there's no partiality with God, right? I could Wrap it up right now, go home, never come back, never do any of this again. And God's still going to love me as much as he's ever loved me. He, I'm still going to be as righteous as I've ever been righteous. I mean, I'm probably miserable because this is what I love to do and this is what God has called me to do. And I have a burden and a heart for it and I would never want to do anything else but this. So I'll be, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be, you know, miserable on my end because I know what God has called me to do and I live for that now. Right? I know my purpose. I know my calling. And, and, and out of love and gratitude, you know, I'm that bond servant. There's something that Jesus said in the New Testament. As this, this lady, you know, he's, he's there eating with a bunch of sinners. 
And all of a sudden, this lady shows up, you know, and, and begins just crying over his feet. And she's just crying and crying and crying. And, and, then, and then everyone out there is just tripping out. He's, a bunch, he's having dinner with a bunch of religious snobs. And he's right there just, just having dinner with them. And she begins just crying all over his feet. And she begins taking her, her hair and, and washing his feet with it, wiping his, his, his feet with it. And the guys there, the, the religious guys are like, man, if he knew who she was, you wouldn't even let her, he wouldn't even let her touch him. And then Jesus said this, knowing their thoughts, he said, he said, he who is forgiven much, loves much. Okay. He who is forgiven much, loves much. You know, you know what God has saved you from? You know who you are, what you've done? And you know that God still loves you despite all that? How could you not have a heart of gratitude? Right? And that's me. I know what God saved me from. I know who I am. I know who I was. Right? And I know what God saved me from. I know that He loved, that He loves me despite all that. How could I not serve Him? That whatever everything I do out here, you guys, you know, see me doing stuff. It, it's not because, you know, I need to do it. It's not because you know I signed up on the list, so now I have to you know <laughs> fulfill my obligation. No, but I'm doing it out of gratitude to the Lord. God, I understand how much how much He's forgiven me. How much he loves me. And Lord, there's nothing I can give him to repay him for that love. Right? There's nothing I, what can I what can you, what can you give God who has everything? Lord, what do you want? My time? My, my house? My car? My apartment? Whatever? My job? That's not enough for him. He's got everything. What do you give someone who has everything? Your heart? God's not going to take ownership of your heart unless you let him. That's the only thing that God does not, does not you know, own. It's your heart. It's your own will. I'm like, Lord, you can have that. You got all that. Right? And so... So I try to so again. He says, "To him who loved us and who washed us in his own blood." Now, again, if we ever mess up, you know how oh, God I blew it. Oh, God loves you. Oh God, I did this, I did that, I messed up. Hey man, I still love you, Lord. Awesome. Now, on the same token, you know if we're continually practicing sin, you know if if we live in a in a, in a continual practice of of open sin, you know, knowing that it's wrong. No, then that's that's something else. You know, that's like a thin line. That's a thin line you're walking. Because even Paul said, you know, he writes in, in the book of Romans, and he's, and he's writing to the Romans there who are who are doing this. You know, he said he's living, he's living, and these guys are living in direct sin. He says, "Hey, man, should we live in sin so that we can experience more of the grace of God?" He's like, "No way." He says, "You know, he says if we're saved from sin, then why are we going to continue abiding in sin? You know, if we know that we're doing this wrong, hey, man, just put it to the side. Just follow Christ, man. Don't let that hold you back." Now, there's nothing that we can do again to, to make God love us any more or any less. There's, there's nothing we can do to add to the righteousness of Christ. I love something that, 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 Jude, that Jude writes and says, there in Judah, it's a one-page book. You, know, you ever want to read a whole book of the Bible and, and say, hey, I read a book of the Bible. Read Jude. It's one page long. You know, and so Jude, verse 24, says, now to him, talking about God, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Man, that's what God does for us. He's able to keep us from stumbling. And he's able to present us faultless. You know, like as if you've never sinned. Why the snow? Man, you take a little pearl, you know, just freshly washed. We just had a, a snowfall up in the mountains not too long ago. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. Like the, the next day after it snows and everything is just so white, untainted. There's not a leaf on the snow yet. Everything is just so white, so pure. And that's what he's saying. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you white as snow, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's what God does. And now the question is, well, if I'm washed, if he says that he loved me, if he says that he, that he washed me, why do I still sin? Why do, I still, why do I still battle with this thing in my heart? Paul, sorry, I don't know my nose, but, uh, but Paul, uh, I believe it's, he writes to the Romans, 
and, and, and he says, he, he, tells, he tells him this, he's like, he's like, man, he's, I'm with you guys. He's like, look, that which I, which I don't want to do, I end up doing. And he says, and that which I want to do, I never do. He says, there's this internal battle within me, you know, because I know what to do right, but yeah, my, my flesh, my, my, you know, my, my selfish nature wants to do wrong. He says, and what I want to do, I don't do. And what I do want to do, I don't end up doing. So the question is, if I'm washed, then what do I still sin? And so we see that though the penalty of sin is removed from us, though the penalty, though the consequence, though the, you know, the judgment of sin is removed from us, and though God has washed us and clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, we still live in the sinful flesh. Right? I still have a simple heart, I still have a simple mind, tainted with things from the past, just tainted from sin, period. Right? And so there's this internal battle within all of us. You know, when we come to the Lord, surrender our lives to the Lord, your soul just wants to glorify God, wants to do what's right, but your flesh, man, this, what you see, our, our hearts, they're just crashing all the time. And sometimes your flesh overpowers your spirit. Sometimes your spirit, you're doing good and you're in your word, you're feeding your spirit, and, and your spirit overpowers your flesh, and those are the days where like, yeah, I feel like a rock star. Yeah, take that, flesh. <laughs> but, but there's this internal battle within us. And so as we continue to battle with sinful desires until we go to be with the Lord and are perfected, you know, we see until then, we're in what's called a sanctification process. That's, a, that's besides you know, a justi- ju- justification. When we come to the Lord, that means there's a technical word for it, theological word, justification. You know, someone would as plainly put it, just justified, you know, it's just as if I've never sinned. Justified. God justifies us. When he sees you, you come to the Lord, now he sees you just as if you've never sinned. Now there's a problem, that, that's, that's final, that's it, boom, that's it. That's at the moment that you believe. That's it, you're justified. But everything after that is what's known as sanctification. Meaning it's, um, I mean, a daily refining. It's a, it's a refining that the Lord does in our life. This daily refining that God is doing in our lives as we allow Him to work in the different areas of our life. Just this refining, the sanctification, right? And that's what we're all in right now. We're a sanctification process. It's not going to end until we're, we're at home to be with the Lord in heaven. So until then, Allah keep allowing the Lord to sanctify you, to refine you in whatever area of your life that you need. And so it goes on to say in verse 7, Verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who, who pierced him. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And he says, I am the Alpha. Now this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so we see that Jesus is coming back. Right? And so what John here is referring to is the second coming of Christ. The Lord came once already. You know, that was in, you know, in that this, uh, 101 AD at the start of time, I guess. Um, so he came already once when he came in the flesh. Right? John the, the, the Baptist, you know, he was a forerunner. He prophesied, all right, man, there's one coming who's greater than me. I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelace. Man, he's so holy. He's, he's better than me. He used to prophesy about the Messiah. Jesus comes onto the scene. He came once. The Bible teaches that, that the Lord is going to come uh, that, a second time. But in between that, he's going to bring us to himself. And so he came once already. The next thing is that, is that God's going to, what we know as the rapture of the church. We can read about there in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. The rapture of the church where God is going to come back for his church. Again, not a church building, not a Calvary chapel, not a whatever, but his body, believers. That's all over the world, right? And so he's going to come back for his church. But what John is referring to right here is the second coming of Christ. When, when Christ comes back to judge the earth for its sin, for its wickedness. 
And so, interesting that in Acts 1.9, which we just finished studying, Acts 1.9, it says, Now when he, talking about Jesus, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So as Jesus was still here on earth, after, after his resurrection, he was here on earth for about 40 days. And, um, and afterwards, he spoke to, to his disciples, gave them a command. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses. And then, he, and then it says, after that, that he was taken up and a cloud received them out of their sight. In Matthew 26.64, Jesus speaking, it says, Jesus said to them, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man, talking about himself, sitting at the right hand of the, of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So he was taken up in the clouds. He's going to come back in the clouds. He had a second coming. Right? And so Jesus is coming back to judge the wickedness of this world. And when he does, it says that everyone will see it and everyone will know it. And we can take comfort of that. It says every eye will see him. It says even those that pierced him. You might ask, well, aren't those guys dead? You know, the guys that pierced them, those Roman soldiers, you know, if they didn't repent for their sins, I mean, aren't they dead? Right? Well, how are they going to see him? Well, they're going to see him, you know, even from their eternal state, being either heaven or hell. Interesting that every single person who was in hell and... and Rejected Christ to the fullest, blasphemy, whatever. They don't want anything to do with God. And, and, and as a result, you know, their eternal stay ended up being in hell. Even they're going to see him when he comes. I don't know how it's going to happen. But I know God is able. He says that every eye is going to see him. So even everyone in hell, every, every, everyone's going to see him. You know, So they're going to see him from his eternal state. You know, there's something that, that, that no one will miss. And again, as the second coming of Christ, you know, comes along with, with judgment upon the wickedness of the earth. We're not going to be here for that. You know, we could take comfort in the fact that, hey, look, man, that, that Paul writes in Thessalonians, he says, we weren't created for wrath. You know, God didn't create us and he didn't save us so that we could experience the wrath of God on us. So why would God save us? Then allow us to go through all this, this destruction and, see, and go through all, this, all these things that are going to happen on the earth when, at his second coming. He wouldn't, right? He didn't save us so that he could, man, all right, I saved you, I loved you, I washed you, I cleansed you, sanctified you, justified you. Now, go through hell. He wouldn't do that. That's not God. God loves us. Right? And the Bible says that we weren't created for wrath. Meaning, when all this goes down, you know, like the, the church is going to be raptured already. We're not going to experience all those things. Thank God. Because there's going to be some heavy stuff that's going to come upon the earth on a Christ-rejecting world. Now, there's going to be another opportunity for them to come to the Lord. And we're going to see that some are, you know, through all of the midst of all that chaos, all the destruction that's on earth. There's going to be another opportunity for people to say, you know what, God, I'm sorry. You know, just, I believe you now. But there's still going to be a lot of people who are going to reject, despite all that. Even then... Chapter 19 of the book of Revelation tells us about a battle. It's titled The Battle of Armageddon where Satan, along with all his demonic forces, is going gonna, is gonna to gather up a, it's what's reversed as the kings of the earth you know, and all kinds of people. You know, who, who knowing, you know, after they went through all this stuff and knowing that it was a, a direct judgment from God, he's still going to somehow you know, raise up this army of demons and of, and of people who are going to come alongside him to try to overthrow the kingdom of God. Despite all that. So we see that, that again, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of sin, right? It's a rejection, it's a rejection of God. But interesting that, that even knowing all that stuff, John says, he says there at the, at the end of verse 7. Again, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. That's not good. But he says, even so, amen. He's like, he's like, he's like man. Now that word amen means I'm in agreement. You know, when someone says amen, you hear us say, right? It's become kind of this like Christianese talk. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. And you, it's something that we just throw out there loosely. Now what that word amen means, it means I'm in agreement. And so John says, look man, uh, 
everyone's gonna mourn because of him. Destruction's gonna come. But even so, let it be, man. I'm in agreement. Let's do this. Let it come. Amen. Why? Because for us, for the church, for those who are who, who, are, who are saved, uh, for us, it's hey, man. It's no thing, man. <laughs> we're gonna be with the Lord, right? We're not gonna be directly affected by this. We're like, all right, man. Look, we made, we're we're righteous in Christ. So for us, it is it is you know something that we shouldn't fear. Before I used to take the, I used to approach the Book of Revelation with fear because I was taught that man. Well, we're gonna go through all that stuff, you know. And when you go through, you better hold on, you know, and you better strap yourself up, you know, and because it's gonna be hell on earth, and you better make it through. You better be faithful, and you better you know hold on to your beliefs and don't deny Christ and don't get the mark of the beast and, and all that. And I think, oh man, I don't know if I could go through that. I think I'll cave. Right? I'm mean, read about all the stuff that's going I'm like, man, I don't think I'm that tough. Seriously. And I used to be fearful. I'm like, man, why would God let me go through all that? Now I have a better understanding of the book of Revelation, knowing that, hey, God didn't create us for wrath. He didn't create us to go through all this. Now I can say, like John, even so, amen. Let's do it. Amen. So take comfort in that, knowing, hey, God didn't create you for wrath. But he created you to experience his grace, his mercy, his, ju- his justice, his long suffering, his kindness, and his love. Loved you, he washed you with his own blood. So why would he allow you to go through any of that suffering that's going to come at the at the at the seven year tribulation, at the end of the at the age, at this judgment on the world? He won't. Amen. Amen. I'm stop right there. I think I exceeded my time limit. But with that, um, 